0: This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Claire Barnes, one of the hosts of the podcast, covering our books on the environment, politics, religion, history, law, and biography. I'm excited to welcome our guest today, Jean Felzer, author of California, A Slave State. Jean Felzer is a public historian, commentator, and professor of American studies at the University of Delaware. Her previous books include Driven Out, The Forgotten War against Chinese Americans, and Origins of Social Realism, among others. Today, we're here to talk with Jean about the history of slavery and resistance in California, which she tells in this new book with Yale University Press. I'm so excited to be with you here today, Jean. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I briefly mentioned a couple of your previous publications, which cover fascinating topics from the hopes and dreams of utopian societies to Chinese American histories of labor resistance. In the broader landscape of your work, you, this book is an interesting cross-section of your of your scholarship. And I also had noted that you're a lifelong Californian. Can you talk more about your drive and inspiration to write this book on California's history as a
1: slave state? This was a history that I found actually through, first through an image, a photograph, from the early 1880s, it's a photograph, and it's in this book, of a young Chinese girl. She looks about 12 to 14. She's, she's young. And she's behind a cage, um, a wire netting. And it turns out that she was captured and seized in China and shipped to California sold on the docks of San Francisco and taken to be a sexual slave in San Francisco on Jackson Street, which has morphed into Grant Avenue, um, very close to the link between Chinatown and white merchant San Francisco. And she was kept in this cage as a sex slave working in a Chinese brothel. And I looked at that picture over and over again. I have two daughters and I just kept saying to myself, what happened to the 13th amendment? How was this image taken probably in the early 1880s possible for there to be this kind of brutal and very public sexual slavery in California? So, I had that image in front of me and I felt like I needed to find out its deeper story. So that was one very powerful impetus. And the other was a few years ago in the local Northern California paper, I saw a notice that a 15 year old girl had been found locked in a metal box up in Lake County a very small, remote county in Northern California. And she'd been picked up on the streets of Hollywood. She was a runaway. She was homeless. She gets in the car with these two guys, and they drive her up to Northern California. And they keep her as a slave to sexually service the field workers and themselves in the new marijuana grows up in Northern California and also to trim the buds off of the marijuana plants. She frees herself. They take her down to the state capitol in Sacramento, lock her in a motel room while they go shopping. She sees a telephone, and she dials 911, and she frees herself. So those two stories of these young women bracket the book, but they also profoundly shaped my sense that why didn't I know this growing up in California and how is it possible to still be happening now?
0: I think the, 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 the time span of those narratives from in, in San Francisco in the 1800s um, and also then to the modern day is such um, a great representation of of what the book does as this huge survey of California as a slave state, even before it was deemed the state of California. And women play such a an important role in this book, and I was really struck by the figures um, throughout throughout the periods that you cover of, of these women in this in these in this book, which which are they're just remarkable figures. And I'm wondering if we can move to an early section of the book, the prologue, where you illuminate the story of Zixsa, of the Malaki people, and you tell her story of enslavement and then share her own narrative of fugitivity, which she had orally dictated. I'm wondering if you can talk more about the choice to begin the book with her story and how she sets the stage for your other discussions of Indian slavery, both within the Spanish period and then when, when California is supposedly a free state?
1: There were several gifts that Zixa gave to me and maybe to the book. Um, I very much, Zixa, for people who haven't read the book, was a 10 year old girl during the Indian genocide enacted by the U.S. military in California to open up California lands um, for new white settlers. And her tribe was inland. And so the military comes to her tribe toward the end of the genocide. It's about 1860, 1861. Mm -hmm. Ironically, now we can realize the Civil War against slavery is happening in the East and in the South. Just as she is captured, the military come into her village and typically they seize the men, they're more afraid of the men, and burn the village. They want the land for white ranchers, white settlement. And the women and children take off and the military chase the women and children and they rope them, they lead them back to a fort, a very shoddy little wooden fort that they've built just to hold these captives. And she and her mom are on the run with her, her kid sister. And eventually she's she survives in the wilderness. I am in awe of how she lived knowing knowing how to live in the wilderness. I'm thinking about the children who recently survived in Colombia because they knew how to live in the Amazon. And I was thinking about Zixa, who knew how to survive in the redwood forest. And she knows how to dig certain bulbs from the ground that are edible, camo lilies. She knows to find safe water by licking the bottom of ferns, so she knows it's rainwater. And she knows how to find little pools in the rivers where she can catch fish with her hands. She carries a coal with her at all times, a hot coal so that she never has to start a fire. She knows this. And then she survives. She's captured and sold to a hog farmer and she runs away, but she's smart. She opens the the barn door to let out all his horses so he can't chase her. She knows how to wade through riffles in the Eel River and time after time, she finds her mom again. And time after time, the military, the U.S. military sells her from the forts where she's captured. Finally, she's on the run, she survives, and when she's old, in the 1930s, she feels, and she says this, white people need to know my story. And she finds a botanist um, at one of the reservations, and she insists that the botanist write down her story. And when she's 91 years old, she tells us the story of her captivity, her forced sexual service, her being on the run with all these other Indian kids across Northern California. They find each other in the mountains. They help each other survive. And finally, how she settles. She marries. She settles. She loses her sister, her sister is sold and never found again. And she survives and insists that her story be told. So my book, I've tried to turn to the voices of the enslaved to tell their own story. And maybe, Claire, this gets back to your earlier question about how this ties to my earlier work, but every place where Californians were enslaved or people who were brought in to work as slaves, uh, every single place they fight back. This is a book about slave revolts, as well as about brutality and human bondage. And I just find inspiration in stories like this. I hope when I'm 91, I can live in the forests, and maybe somebody will want to hear my story.
0: Yeah, I I was also struck um, by Zixa's story, her story of captivity and, and resistance, as you mentioned, her knowledge of the land and her incredible determination to return back to her mother and to her family, to herself. And there are a couple of other uh, women in the book that are integral to the the, sto- the stories of these slave revolts that that are that you present in the book. And there were many slave revolts that you write about in the late 1700s, where indigenous peoples and groups, women and and men, um, are are fighting back against the Spanish colonial rule. And I'm wondering if you could just talk more about the importance of these slave revolts to the larger narrative of the book. Uh, What do they reveal about the power dynamics between indigenous populations and enslavers in the region? I would love to hear more um, about, about that from you.
1: It's an important question, and it shapes the book. Every place where there was slavery in California, there were slave revolts. The first one happened with Junipero Serra, the Padre who was recently sainted, um, one of the first Spaniards to be sainted in the United States and the protests against his being sa- sainted, people pulling down the statues of Junipero Serra at the missions and in parks. The first people In 1769, the Spanish invade California right at San Diego, right at the border, right now where we have the detention centers at the border. It's right there that the Spanish invade. They're led by Junipera Serra. There are about 100 Spanish soldiers. There are only eight priests, and they plan to conquer California. Their goal is to stop the Russians who are coming down from the north and to convert over 300,000 Native American Californians to Catholicism. So it wasn't about gold then. It wasn't really about land as productive land. And it wasn't, but they're building on what they had already done in Mexico and Peru um, to use. Native Americans as slave labor, as soon as they land in San Diego, Sarah holds a mass and the Kumayai people come down to watch. They're fascinated. They see these men who are hidden in deep gray robes with um, hoodies. You know, they can't see their faces, but they see these men with these elaborate crosses. There are pictures of the Madonna and the baby Jesus, and the men are flagellating themselves with iron hooks. And the Kumeyaay are just haunted by what they're seeing. They very The Spanish very quickly build a mission. They capture some of the Kumeyaay people, and within months, The huge tribe of Kumeyaay sweep down from the hills. They don't have the horse. They come on foot. And they burn the first San Diego mission. They kill the head priest. And they free all of their people. And we now know the story of this slave revolt and how these small clans within the Kumeyaay tribe coordinate together in the surrounding San Diego mesas and on the beach to coordinate a slave revolt and free the Kumai from the Spanish. So it begins right there. And Sarah Junipera Sara, is writing letters back to the mother mission in Mexico, in Laredo, Mexico, frantic about the Spanish soldiers And he writes these letters throughout raping the women. And he knows that they will never successfully convert the tribal people of California with the quantity of deliberate and orchestrated rape. So throughout this, it's not just a women's story, but it's very much a women's story and also a children's story of them taking children for labor, And for sexual assault, so that slave revolt opens the book.
0: Yeah, and I and I think you know your your stories and and as and and as you're telling our listeners now, these are really chilling, you know, depictions of of what um, slavery looked like in California, what these slave revolts were like, and yet so necessary to deepen our understanding of California history and. I, I I know he you had mentioned another woman that led a slave revolt, Toy Purina. And I'm wondering if you could talk more about her because she was such a fascinating figure, I think the only native woman to lead a revolt against the Spanish Empire. Are you write?
1: Yeah, um, Toy Purina was at a mission. It was Mission San Gabriel was the closest mission. She was from the Tongva tribe. I think for many people, um, including me initially, I didn't understand that there were 250 tribes in California. So we're speak, speaking of congregations of that are not thousands and thousands of people, they're hundreds and hundreds of people. And the Tongva people Lived for between six and 12,000 years, just north of what's now Los Angeles, just at the northern end of what would be the valley, north of L.A. for people who are aware of California. And they were brutalized. They were seized. They were forced to work at the missions. And Barina was born and designated a, cha- a shaman she was known to be a spiritual person. And she's raised knowing that she's a leader and that she's an important person. And she's recruited to lead a slave revolt against the missions. And because she's such a powerful young figure, people follow her. And they, on one night, they bust into the missions, and someone has ratted them out. And as they climb over the walls of the mission, they're seized. And with the other chiefs who were following her, and Toyperina is seized. And there's a trial. And one of the ways we know Toy Perina's story is I was able to find the transcripts of her trial. And she's really a tough girl. And... They want her to to kneel on a witness stool and Toiperina says, I will not kneel before you. I will not sit on the stool. And some of the other activists in the slave revolt are killed. Many are sent to the other forts, the other military forts, um, that were at the Presidios, that were at the various missions. And they send Toyperina away. And she actually ends up marrying a Spanish soldier. And I don't know if that was for her survival. She knew she was never allowed to go home. But she does lead this very powerful slave revolt. And it puts the Spanish on notice that this is running through all of the missions. And what I didn't know growing up in California, was that there were revolts, orchestrated huge slave revolts at the missions and that that's part, a huge part of what brought the mission system to an end. I really like the image of Toy Perina just saying, and it's transcribed by the Spanish, I will not kneel before you, I will not sit on your stool.
0: That's so powerful. I, I, I think there are many images that are in, in the book itself, uh, visual representations of these slave revolts. Um, and I think they're, they're so interesting as, you know, a keystone of cultural memory and nation building in the state as depicted by colonizers and settlers. But when we have these other archives, um, of narratives of these really, you know, these strong, um, you know, activists at the time, um, that's, those are also really amazing images to have in this story. And I wanted to turn um, our conversation to your discussion of legal restrictions, particularly in the first civil rights movement in California. And A couple of days ago, uh, NPR ran a story on the Citing Slavery Project, which is a comprehensive online database and map of slave cases and the modern cases that still cite them today as precedent. And in your discussion of, of California's first civil rights movement, you do talk in detail about the stifling legal restrictions against African-Americans who are trying to testify in court against their white perpetrators. I'm wondering if you can bring us into the highlights of this section and talk more about the various anti-slavery gatherings, the different newspapers, petitions, conventions that were brewing in California in the mid-1800s.
1: This was something growing up in California I didn't know. And until really the work of some of the scholars, particular, particularly Gabrielle Foreman, who just won the MacArthur for this work on the California Colored Conventions, I don't think we had a history in the early 19th century. We certainly have a strong history of abolition. But we don't have a vast history of the colored conventions. California was really unique. In some ways, you can look at California as sort of like a border state, almost like Maryland or Delaware. What happens in California is with the gold rush, plantation owners transport slaves across the plains or through the jungles of Panama and then on ship. Up to San Francisco to work for them in the mines, and they don't know that they've been brought into a free st- into a free state, or at least by constitution, a free state. And what happens in California is that enslaved blacks meet free blacks, um, mainly men and some women, some very powerful women, who have come out for the gold rush. And they've also come out to get away from the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act in the East. So they're desperate to get away from the East. They're free. They come to California, but and they meet, to their surprise, they meet over 2,000 enslaved Blacks who've been transported from the South, from Missouri, Mississippi, and Texas To work for plantation owners and do the nasty work of digging through the mud and looking for gold up in the sierra mountains with this meeting of enslaved and free blacks a new civil rights movement or the first civil rights movement is formed but their needs are different Um, for the enslaved blacks they need to be able to claim their freedom And to claim their freedom, they need to be able to testify in court that they have been brought into a free state. And some of them were forced to sign contracts that said, if you come out and work for me, parens, in this free state, I will grant you your freedom in a certain number of months. For the free blacks, they couldn't prove that they were free unless they could testify in court. Unless you can go into court with your manumission paper or your freedom paper or your birth certificates to establish that you are a free person, a free black person. If you're not allowed to testify, you can be seized and taken back or taken into slavery. So in California, the right to testify was the ticket to freedom. And that's what the colored conventions were about. There were four colored conventions in California. Hundreds of African Americans in California's case, they were all men, um, gather. The first meetings are at the A.M.E. the um, Methodist Episcopal churches in San in Sacramento. Very deliberately down the street from the state house where these laws were being enacted, and they're demanding the right to testify. And they produce over 8,000 petitions. And as a historian, I can tell you when I went into the Sacramento, California archives and touched these petitions demanding the right to testify that were circulated and signed all over the state, it's really compelling people's organizing skills and their struggle for freedom, the California legislature copies the U.S. House of Representatives, which had a gag order about talking about slavery, and it throws the petitions out. It literally refuses to receive them. So they were collected after the fact so that's the organization that gives birth to the civil rights movement and it also gave birth to what we happened what happened in the later civil rights movement that's born in the 50s the 1950s 60s and 70s is that free blacks are raising money for enslaved blacks to have lawyers to have white lawyers and they raise thousands upon thousands of dollars so that enslaved Blacks can go to court and be represented and gain their freedom.
0: Right. And and there were so many um, other really interesting intersections in your book uh, between Organizers on the East Coast who are really focused on kind of the dominant narrative that we've heard of, of North South slavery, such as Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison and the Liberator. They're commenting on stuff that's happening in California. Um, in addition to you know other types of things in the legal system, such as the poll tax that that are still you know, that those continue on into the modern day struggle. And, you know, the book is, is really an amazing survey of California as a slave state. You, and you move from different sites of bondage, as we've talked about, including missions. Um, we haven't talked yet about this, but you discuss it in your book, Native boarding schools, ranches, reservations, and, and of course, up to modern discussions of, of California, their prison system, um, as well as modern day labor trafficking. And, um, as I'm also a native Californian and, you know, I, I think that, you know, the state's involvement with slavery is so ingrained in, in our educational experience. I'm thinking here of the mission projects that we had to complete in elementary school, but, you know, I, have also never, uh, learned in the education system about you know the organizing that was happening at the colored conventions or you know the prevalence of sex slavery in, in San Francisco with um, a lot of the Chinese immigrants and and so I'm I'm wondering how you hope that this book will be adopted for courses you know from primary to collegiate settings especially in the state of California.
1: I'm hoping this is and I've heard that it is which makes my heart happy that this is a very readable book in fact somebody just called it a page turner because i really want this book to be available not just in university courses which we know is often the long life of a history book um i joked with the with the publicists about um, how are we going to publicize a banned book and will this book even be allowed to be sold in Texas and Florida? Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that the, these stories will resonate. They certainly go into the present with human trafficking. I grew up in California. I went to high school, public high school in L.A. I went did my B.A. and M.A. at Berkeley. And I didn't learn this. And I'm really hoping that it will be adopted by the California Board of Education to be taught. Um, They have a parallel list of what we would call in college elective books. And I'm really hoping that this um, book is available to young people because my goal is that it isn't just a story of trauma, but it's a story of organizing and people taking this history and and organizing resistance but also I think this is a book about voices about the power of telling stories and I hope that the stories get heard because my goal in the research um, was to find these stories and have people tell them in their own voices and I think that's what we want for our kids is to be able to find their voice and tell their stories and for this book not to be <laughs> taken off the shelves. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, that it, it is a very serious consideration. Will this book be banned in places that have, um, you know, more conservative leadership. And I am wondering if we can turn lastly to The topic of reparations, which is, I think, in some ways connected to how to how we hope that this book will make an impact. And in the epilogue, you you ask, you know, what constitutes amends and you list a series of what reparations could entail, which include visas, vaccines, electricity, taking down harmful language and statues land acknowledgements, money, the list goes on. And there is an important, you know, July 1st deadline for the California reparations task force dealing with these questions. And I'm wondering if you'd like to speak, you know, about your discussion of reparations about the task force and, and what role you hope the history will have on, on the future of reparations in the state of California.
1: Oh, thank you, Claire. Um, I'm actually about to testify before the Reparations Commission for San Francisco, and we'll be raising these issues that it's possible. California is one of the few states that's put a dollar figure, one of the few places that has put a dollar figure on reparations. And the first dollar figure that was put forth a few weeks ago was $8 billion, which is almost equal to the budget of California. And so we all are weighing what's right and the economic cost of the legacy of slavery in terms of health care, education, redlining against being able to own homes, the poll tax. There's a story in the book of two men who refuse to pay a poll tax when they're not allowed to vote. So there's a legacy of all of these things. Probably one of the most terrifying decisions in the past few years was the Supreme Court annihilating the Voting Rights Act. So all of these issues are current, and some of them have dollar figures, like the loss of education, the loss of housing, the loss of jobs, um, that are downstream from slavery, and oppression. And then there are things that can be fixed, such as the announcement this morning that, from the Supreme Court in the 7-2 to two decision that um, upheld the Indian Child Welfare Act and says that um, an Indian child... Um, belongs in its tribe, in his or her tribe, that a child can't be adopted out of the tribe if the tribe or the tribal family, the tribal relatives want to keep and raise that child. It's an incredibly important decision that goes up against the Indian boarding schools and all kinds of captivity. So Reparations can take a lot of forms, and it's going to be different for different groups of people. What Native Americans want is land more than the check, and they feel like the right to casinos is only partway there. It doesn't give them the land on which the casinos are built. It doesn't give them the land that was lost in California where they were sent to a handful of really remote and tiny reservations with different ecosystems that they didn't know how to live on, that they starved on. So part of it is land, part of it is money, and part of it is education. Part of it is having access to vaccines Um, during COVID. The little library vans still went onto some of the reservations up here in Northern California, they could have carried vaccines with them in these library vans, going into very remote reservations like the Hoopa Reservation and delivering easily delivering vaccines to people who don't have transportation to the cities or don't have really powerful health clinics. So reparations can take a variety of forms. Um, I have Concerns about the flood of apologies that are coming forth from state governments and cities, apologizing for all the various forms of oppression. And is it just checking the box? Okay, we've done that, we've apologized. Or is it deeper than that? Does it mean that the truth has been acknowledged and can be used and built upon? We'll all probably think differently about that. Um, Two weeks ago, I spoke in the city of Antioch, where there was an apology for the uh, violence done to the Chinese people in the city of Antioch. And I watched, having published all of my concerns about apologies, I watched a Chinese family turn that printed apology over to the historical society so that it will always be known, that it will never be forgotten what happened to the Chinese in Antioch. And I have to say that it, it changed me to see the power of acknowledgement, the power of truth-telling beyond the check. And yet we all know that without, without money, that none of these um, systematic changes can happen
0: that's incredibly powerful and and I do think that this the book itself is an act of truth telling and it is a page turner and I'm really grateful that we could talk about all the different aspects of the book today and and there's so much more within this really deep history that you have that we haven't talked about but As we come to the conclusion of our conversation, is there anything else that we haven't touched on yet that you'd like to share with our listeners about the book?
1: I think what struck me was the, um, one is the currency of modern human and sex trafficking. I was stunned to discover that when the Native American children were being sold Um, in the Siskiyou Mountains and in the Eel River Valley and around Sacramento. Somebody said, a farmer said, there isn't a household in Sacramento that doesn't have an Indian slave in that household. Um, How common it was for Native Americans to be sold, for African-American plantation, enslaved plantation workers to be transported out to California. So I think the takeaway for me is that how common it was, how casual it was, how it worked through the law, but like slavery everywhere, it also works through violence. You need the twinned hand in hand of the legal system and brutality to keep a person enslaved And so that was an important takeaway for me. But also, right now, to have the takeaway that modern human slavery is downstream, is the legacy of all of these other forms of slavery, that there are slavery in the garment workers, in all of our cool sweatpants and sweatshirts and T-shirts and the university-labeled. You know, baseball caps and hoodies that kids wear, that we wear, Um, that they are stitched together in sweatshirts, in sweatshops, (laughs) Um, and that girls are standing at at truck stops being trafficked, that children are being trafficked out of foster care right now, that people become foster families and then sell these children that families and women and children are being trafficked out of the immigrant detention centers now that this is our legacy to deal with now as well as to become informed about the history that you and I were never taught
0: i just want to say thank you you know so much for for taking the time out of your day to talk with us not only about the legacy uh, and the histories of slavery in California, but the ways in which all of our lives are still shaped by, by slavery, by modern-day forms of slavery. And it is the book is such a much-needed invitation to think more deeply about California's utopian brand and also America's path forward with reparations. Thank you for being here today on the
1: podcast. Oh, thank you, Claire, for your really thoughtful reading of the book and for hosting me. Thank you.
0: California, a Slave State by Jean Felzer is now available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for listening. Please visit us online at YaleBooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.